New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, we welcome one of our favorite authors back into the time machine. It's Neil Bascom. We last caught up with Neil in Nazi-occupied Norway for the bone-chilling tale of The Winter Fortress, the epic mission to sabotage Hitler's atomic bomb. You can catch that chat in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. Neil Bascom's latest book is The Escape Artists, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison break of the Great War. It's the tale of Allied Airmen who set out to defeat Kaiser Wilhelm's most dreaded prisoner of war camp, Holzminden, and to outwit its infamous commandant, Carl Niemeyer, who swore that no one would get out alive. Dipping into memoirs and letters seen for the first time here, Neil Bascom brings us this forgotten story in a rare bit of encouraging news for the home front during the darkness of the Great War. He also spoke to second and third generation people, a reminder that sometimes the things in our attic are of real historical value. Neil Bascom is a national award-winning and New York Times best-selling author of several non-fiction narratives. These include Hunting Eichmann and The Perfect Mile, which is often ranked as the top book on running. He's also delivered One More Step, about the first man with cerebral palsy to scale Kilimanjaro and finish the Kona Ironman. For more on our guest... Visit neilbascom.com, follow him at neilbascom on Twitter, or like him at facebook.com slash neilrbascom. That last name is spelled B-A-S-C-O-M-B. Okay, now that we've crash-landed our crippled biplane beyond no man's land, in German-occupied territory far from our own trenches, Let's join Neil Bascom at the Holzminden POW camp and pin our fading hopes of freedom on The Escape Artists. I'm joined on the line by Neil Bascom, author of The Escape Artists, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison break of the Great War. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Neil. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and I appreciate your writing. I appreciate that you go and find these stories that are not already covered in a bunch of books on the bookshelves. I read, in fact, where you said you shy away from that. You don't want to retell stories that have been told a bunch of times, even though there's nothing wrong with that and you can find new things. The Great War with the Centennial in 2018 it's really rich. You'd think it would have all been walked over. And yet, for reasons we've discussed before, that's not the case. It's something where, you know, by the time those guys are ready to write their memoirs, World War II came along. And a lot of these stories incredibly have been lost. And what stories they are here in The Escape Artists. This is a, an amazing legacy that these men have at this prison and how we deal with prisoners of war on a scale of mechanized war. It's a cliche almost to say that World War I, it has all this carnage. It's the first mechanized war. But you don't think that you're taking hundreds of thousands of POWs going back and forth. How do you house these men? How do you feed them? What do you do? And you recount in The Escape Artist a little of the history leading up to the Great War, how prisoners of war have been treated over time. How did this new POW phenomenon differ in the Great War from all those wars that preceded it? 
Well, the biggest difference was just the sheer enormity of prisoners. So there were many accords, the Hague Conventions sort of dictating how prisoners should be treated, how they should be repatriated. And those were created, those rules, even dating back to Lincoln and writing the war manual on a population of prisoners that were in the, the thousands or the tens of thousands but not a population in the millions. I mean, the Germans alone had almost 2 million prisoners wow. by 1916. And so what do you do with them is really the first question. I mean, you have to create prisons for these individuals. And so they had to be hastily constructed. And how do you feed them? How do you care for them? None of those organizations were set up for that. And then I think probably the most important thing is who's going to oversee running these prisons. And the Germans had kind of a hodgepodge collection of commandants and army districts that were ruling these various prisons. And so you've had the case where if you had a good commandant, life as a prisoner stuck to the hog conventions. But if you had a, an awful, like the one that I recount in Escape Artist, then it's a very different picture. There's rabid abuse uh, in some cases, some really killing prisoners. And also, you know, in World War One, there was a great deal of prison work. Conditions were awful in coal mines, salt mines and factories and prisoners, particularly the enlisted ranks, were dying in pretty large numbers. You think of the two million Germans that made me do a quick search there's about 1.3, 1.4 million active duty soldiers in the entire U.S. military. So it gives you some idea. Imagine all of those men at some point needing to be processed and being taken captive. It's an amazing scale. And also not just that these men deal with it, but the legacy that you cover in The Escape Artists, which we'll deal with a little bit later I want to touch on introducing some of the men that readers will meet in the escape artists and become really invested in them. That's one of the things here about an escape story, right? You find yourself short of breath. <laughs> you know, you need to go outside and walk. I know in, in the book Silence of the Lambs, there's this great little detail about the Hannibal Lecter character and he escapes and he just walks the length of his hotel room again and again because he's been unable to do that in that little nine by six foot cell that they stick him in. And that's how you feel here. It's great how you make this crucible where we feel claustrophobic right along with these men in The Escape Artist. And then we also feel euphoric with them when we get on the outside and we're so close to escaping. It's just some great tales. I want to start with Captain David Gray. He gets shot down in September of 1916, and he's ashamed. There's none of the relief that people might associate with, at least I get to go and, and be somewhere comfortable. That's not the case here, and I guess unless you've experienced it, you wouldn't know what you're in for. I think of Winston Churchill just being disgusted with himself when he has to surrender to the Boers, right. and he thinks of Napoleon, and he says, well, when one is unarmed and you know against impossible odds, it's acceptable to surrender, you know, ra rather than just you know, get yourself shot. <laughs> and that's an experience he takes into World War II, where when he's in charge of POWs, he tries to make their lot a little easier, give them books, make it as humane as it can be for them, treat them with respect. And he, as you alluded to there, he has a pretty easy time in the camp because he's an officer and there's a definite dividing line. And this is a line that we're redrawing here with the escape artists in the Great War. So in the person of Captain Gray, who is he and how does he resolve to redeem himself throughout the escape artists? Yes, most of the lead individuals in this book are Royal Flying Corps pilots, which I found when I first began investigating the story and, and thinking about pursuing it and writing it was just this sort of fascination of these pioneering aviators, these first members of a Royal Air Force. And they were daredevils and they were individuals who were sort of pushing the edges of things and they, their lives, you know, in the Royal Flying Corps were this sort of freedom embracing, you know, up in the sky. And then suddenly you have them shot down, put into these prisons in these claustrophobic places, as you described. And it's just such a dichotomy and such a role reversal for them that I found it sort of fascinating, you know, what happened to them? You know, how was that 
at one moment you're flying above the battlefields of France and Germany, and then in the next moment you're in a cell that you can't stretch out in. And so understanding what that did to their psyche and and what motivated them ultimately to escape was very interesting to me. And I think Dave Gray in particular, he was an individual who was born in India. His father was stationed over there. And he came back and his, his father was a bit of a drunk and a jokester. And David Gray wanted to be everything that he was not. And he went to military school, joined the British Indian Army, served over there for a long time, and then saw these planes and was fascinated by them and wanted to be a pilot. You know, and the average lifespan of these individuals in some of the most heated parts of the war was about 17 hours over the lines, which is a, just an excruciating death rate. And if you weren't shot down and killed, you were generally shot down and captured. And that's what happened to David in September 1916. And almost from the immediate moment that he is in German hands, he's thinking about how he's going to escape. And he was very much burdened by the fact, I mean, he was the leader of the, the squadron that was flying in a dogfight that Oswald Bolke and von Richthofen were involved in. And David lost most of his squadron that day, felt a great deal of responsibility for that, and really wanted to escape and get back to the war, get back to his squadron, and get back to the fight. And he felt shame that, one, his squadron had basically been eviscerated, and two, that he was sitting there idle in a camp while he felt he should have been fighting. It's something I like to dig into, the idea of how these men feel when they're in the air, the difference between the services and the service that they're doing. When we talked with Patrick Gregory about an American on the Western Front, right. he describes this idea of he's up there, it's so calm, and he writes it in his letters. Young Clifford Kimber, he says, this is an easy war for me, what I'm doing. He downplays it. He says the men in the trenches, they're suffering. He says, if I get shot down like an eagle, that'll be it. It's a fast end. Whereas if you're in the trench, we all know the horrible ways that people can lose their lives, long lingering deaths. And so to see these men, if they're not flying, if they're not providing some service, everybody does their bit, and you're up there flying, giving us the intelligence we need, and all those kind of things, you could see where that would really depress you. You pile on top of that, you have all this dehumanizing pressure that's being put on them by the people that are holding them captive. It really is a, an amazing study in the human condition and how we think. From that, I learned a new phrase in the escape artists, and that's barbed wire disease. Explain that a little to us as part of that broader scope of the men's psyche. Sure. I mean, I think the barbed wire disease, probably the best way to describe that is kind of a depression that these prisoners would go into after they had been incarcerated for months at a time. And Will Harvey, who was a poet as well as a scout in the trenches, was captured. And I included him in the story, not only because he was involved in the number of escapes, but because he wrote so beautifully about what it was to be a prisoner and what it was to suffer from barbed wire disease. He described it as a kind of mold, a green mold that was growing on his brain. And the reason that, that he felt so sort of hopeless was that sense of uselessness, that sense of being there stuck in the prison while your mates were out there risking their lives. And day after day, of doing the same thing, having no freedom to sort of articulate your life. You're told when to go to sleep, when to eat, when to wake up, who you can associate with, what patch of yard you can be in, and that constant sense of restriction and, and lack of your own ability to make decisions and the uselessness all kind of aggregated into this mold, as he described it. And he would go into really the depths of depression. He would stop shaving. Uh, at times he would stop eating. You know, a lot of these prisoners would just lie in bed all day. What was the use? And he came out of it ultimately and did some pretty fantastic things while he was in prison. But a lot of these individuals, officers and the enlisted ranks alike, suffered from this barbed wire disease. And reading The Escape Artist gave me that sense as I was looking at the book and then you and I began talking and we happened to be chatting on a Saturday morning and it flashed into my mind. Every day is like the other. When we said that about a Saturday morning, I thought of them as I often do when I think about history and how much easier we have it than some of the subjects that we might look at in books. And I thought 
that is so painful. You know, that's so hard to get motivated then. And this is the kind of thing where later, when their experiences are applied to future POWs, they teach them things like have a routine, get up, make sure that you, that you go to the mess, make sure that you exercise and things, because you have to preserve that sense of routine to have some control over your life. And these are things that, unfortunately, we only learn after they go through this horror. Oh, absolutely. And I think part of this whole motivation to escape, and this isn't necessarily the case with everyone, but there was a small subsection, of course, of people in these camps. It's almost impossible to put a percentage on it, but let's say one to two percent who were constantly trying to get out. And part of that reason was to get to freedom. But for some of them, you really do get the sense that it is something just to occupy their mind with something to push them out of bed every morning and to do and to look forward to and to hope for. And so whether or not they ended up ever getting out of the camp was almost a moot point for some of them. It helped them survive. And it was particularly, I think, the case with these Royal Flying Corps pilots who were absolute rascals who, you know, just couldn't stand this idea of routine or being unable to, to sort of live their own lives. The nemesis of those prisoners at Holzminden is Carl Niemeyer. I guess we've all grown up with the image of Colonel Klink as the bungling German <laughs> POW, right? Camp Commandant. When I spoke to Ann Serling about her book about her father, Rod Serling, as I knew him, she talked about, as she did in the book, that he didn't like that. He thought that that was a terrible way to depict it. And, of course, since he was a famous Hollywood writer. He was able to call Bob Crane and say, I, I think that that makes it seem like a little bit of a lark. When we meet Carl Niemeyer, he is a buffoon. He is also cruel and arbitrary, however. And whereas I think the buffoonish stuff is something that helps, it makes me think of the U.S. hockey team, the Miracle on Ice team, that they said he right. looked like Stan Laurel, the coach of the <laughs> Russian team. You know, it's very effective mocking and making somebody look ridiculous to quote the Godfather. I don't know how many pop culture things I can jam in here, but that's part of it that the guy is absurd and ridiculous and he does all these things that are just random, I guess we would say, that, that don't make sense, that don't follow a straight line, and you can make him look silly. But he's not just going to laugh and roll over for the Hogans that are these real-life men here in his camp. He's cruel, he's arbitrary in, in his justice, he'll promise the men things and take them away. Talk about how he avoids the treaty obligations and oversight to run the prison as this private, unchecked house of pain. Well, he was largely able to do that, Carl Niemeyer, by virtue of the fact that his superior officer uh, in the 10th Army District of the Wehrmacht at that time allowed him to. And I would probably argue that Niemeyer was sending bribes to him. Hmm. You know, Niemeyer was an absolute cad, as you described, a fool, but he was also using his position to extort pretty large sums of money from these prisoners that were held in this camp. And again, as I mentioned, you know, in the first part of this interview, imagine this vast population of prisoners and the, the number of camps is over 200. So, you know, the oversight of those was pretty small. And I even found evidence that, of course, the Allies, Red Cross inspectors would come in and the, and the like. And you know, there is some evidence, at least from the point of view of the British archives, that the inspectors that were sent to, to look over Holtzman in the camp where Niemeyer ruled, he was on the take as well. So what we do know is that Niemeyer had pretty much a, an open hand to do whatever he liked at this camp. And he used this position to be excessively cruel to these prisoners. I mean, he would walk around the grounds. And if someone was in the windows that he didn't like, he'd just sort of fires revolver at the window. Reported cases of that happening numerous times. Prisoners were put into isolation for months at a time at a camp that he had worked at previously before he was actually elevated to his position as commandant. Prisoners were collecting at the entrance of a gate to welcome new arrivals, and he, he sent his men in with bayonets to disperse the crowd. Several were stabbed. So, you know, there is this time in World War One. it's this kind of watershed moment where, you know, you have this idea of how we should treat prisoners in a decent manner. And then you have individuals like Niemeyer who have basically taken that 
stepped on those rules and have decided to do whatever they like. You see echoes of what happened in World War One in these prison systems, numbers of deaths to what's going to end up happening in World War Two. I would think that you could draw a pretty straight line between those two things. Once you dehumanize them in the camp, it's it's very easy to just look at them as cattle. And that's what you have in Holzminden, which the prisoners nickname Helminden. It's a place that's designed to break your spirit, to make you feel like you're not even human anymore. And this sadistic commandant, it uses that to full effect. And he revels in telling the men that it's escape proof, that you're not going to get out, that it's, quote, a prison within a prison within a prison. They call it the black hole of Germany. Yet the men, in just an incredible and inspiring moment, I use the word inspiring a lot because I find history inspiring, but when you can look at people here, men at their very lowest in the escape artist, if there was ever a reason to just give up, much less to stop trying to learn or innovate, this would be it. You would forgive them for just those guys that are laying in their bunk that just can't make themselves get up anymore. And yet you write that it becomes an escape university. So describe the challenges of the prison presented to the men that you recount in the escape artist and a few of your favorite ways that they show their ingenuity and manage to overcome all the limitations that supposedly makes Holzminden escape-proof. Yes, I mean, what's what's great about Holzminden is, at least from a narrative point of view, is it was created in October of 1917 by the Germans, essentially to house the worst of the worst of the Allied prisoners, particularly British prisoners. By worst of the worst, I mean the most escape prone, the ones who had tried to break out from any number of other camps many times successfully, but almost always being recaptured before they reached the Dutch border and freedom. And David Gray was one of these individuals, you know, he's a perfect example and escaped three other times from other camps, at times just walking out straight out in a German uniform. And the Germans decided, you know, enough is enough. Let's create Holtzman and we'll create this escape proof place. We'll put this tyrant in charge and we'll make it escape proof. What they did not understand or what they did not predict was that by putting all these prisoners who had learned all skills on how to break out, whether it was to dig a tunnel or pick a lock or create a disguise or sew a fake uniform or any other number of skills that would prove useful, they put them all in one place and they were just, these officers were just feeding off of each other, creating ideas. Some were absolutely lunatic. One of my sort of most favorite is probably they created uh, with a long board, a kind of runway with rails that they extended this board over one of the walls, or at least they thought they had. And then they they created kind of a track and then a car that would go down it. And they'd sort of shoot over the wall. Well, that didn't work, but you know, it was definitely in an attempt. <laughs> Uh, at another time, they broke through a door, created a sort of fake passage, and would just walk s- straight out of the gate. These were in the very early days of this of Holtzman and when the security measures were not all in place. But by the time that David Gray and others had arrived, it, it was indeed a prison inside a prison inside a prison. They had, you know, this two barracks where they lived, surrounded by a fence and then a no man's land and then another fence. And then a creation of another long no man's land ground where some of the German guards lived. And then finally a surrounding high stone wall with barbed wire. Had lights 24 hours a day. They had dogs. They had a pretty high level of of sentries or guards running around constantly the camp. And so it was a very hard place to escape from. Plus it was hundreds of miles away from the Dutch border. So it was not quite a Alcatraz surrounded by water, but in the sense of even if you got beyond the walls that you still needed to travel through the you know enemy occupied territory made it in very many ways as i call it the sort of alcatraz in germany you name escape from alcatraz among your favorite films growing up so that's a perfect segue to me because <laughs> i always like to ask about movies because we all absorb those images right we're picturing Clint Eastwood with a little spoon trying to dig things out, or we are picturing the 
end of the tunnel coming out underneath that doghouse from Hogan's Heroes. Whether we want to or not, whether it frustrates us or not to realize we have silly images blended in with the real history, and maybe that's part of what Rod Serling was getting at there, why he didn't like the concept of Hogan's Heroes. How do silver screen versions differ from reality? And are there any details now that amuse you, bother you, or otherwise destroy your suspension of disbelief now that you've tunneled into this formative story of prison escapes? One of the foremost ones, whether it's, you know, Shawshank Redemption or Escape from Alcatraz and and all that, is you do have the sense that these prisoners, at least in the silver screens version, is sort of never losing hope. They're sort of dogged and they don't suffer really from this barbed wire disease, this green mold, as Will Harvey described it. And these prisons, at least Holtzman, were in many senses very hard, dark places where the men many times had kind of given up on escaping. But with David Gray and this ultimate escape from the Alcatraz of Germany, I mean, he really did have to rally this group of officers to, you know, sort of soldier forward and and get out of the camp. So I think that is one of the things that I've taken away from researching this book and writing Escape Artists. I think the silver screen versions are fun. uh, And, you know, Escape from Alcatraz, as you mentioned, was, was one of my favorite movies of all time. And, you know, it's it's a great story. But from my point of view, this real story of what happened in Germany in, in 1918, who these men were, the challenges they faced, the darkness of the period, but also the mix of humor really captivated me and, and made me want to tell this story. And I think even more than that was, you know, this art of escape, these escape artists, as I call them, really, they were the originators of that. MI-9, which was created in World War II to help allied, uh, mainly British prisoners escape and evade, taught lessons of that. All that began with these escape artists in World War I. They're the ones who were shot down, had no instructions, no supplies, no training at all on what to do, how to escape, how to evade, and they had to learn it themselves. And I find that that sort of origin story of these individuals, which many of the silver screen versions you see later, whether it's the Colditz story or the Great Escape of World War II or any other version of escape that we find moving forward, in some ways that kind of story that they're telling is really the truth of what happened at Holtzman. You're enjoying my chat with Neil Bascom about his book, The Escape Artists, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison break of the Great War. You can visit him at neilbascom.com, follow him on Twitter at neilbascom, and toss him a like at facebook.com slash neilrbascom. His last name is spelled B-A-S-C-O-M-B. David Gran, New York Times best-selling author of Killers of the Flower Moon, writes of the escape artists... Bascom has unearthed a remarkable piece of hidden history and told it perfectly. The story brims with adventure, suspense, daring, and heroism. Neil, when I read the word unearthed in that blurb, I had visions of someone from the book, The Escape Artists, buried in a blast of dirt kicked up by a bomb. This is a story you describe happening to an Australian soldier. He lays entombed for 30 hours in that dirt, unable to move, unable to escape. (laughs) It's just an incredible story. Can you imagine that? I don't think any of us can. 30 hours, you mentioned 11 hours being the average life of a pilot going over there, and that seemed short, and now 30 hours seems very long. Just laying there, not knowing your fate, nothing. Talk about having no hope. In a war that's very light on uplifting stories, did that man's tale remain lost for a century or has it been celebrated for its endurance? You know, it really hasn't. His name was Richard Cash. He was, you know, owned a shop in Australia, was a photographer, was very short, probably about five foot two, found himself on the Western Front, actually volunteered several times in order to serve, got out over there and was in the trenches and then an offensive and a mortar blast and he was vaulted in the air and then landed in a basically a ditch and was covered in the own in his own dirt and he was spent 30 hours eventually the germans captured him 
it took almost a year to recover from the many wounds that he had suffered. He was eventually sent to Holtzminden as basically kind of a servant to the officers who were were an orderly for the officers. And he was instrumental in helping them escape. His skills as a photographer helped them create a series of maps that they would need on their run from the camp to Holland. And Dick Cash risked his life not only on the lines, but also in the, in the camps, because if he was caught helping these officers, if the officers were punished, they were basically sent to isolation. If you're an enlisted rank, an orderly, and you're punished, uh, you were sent to a mine or a factory where your chances of survival were pretty dim. So Dick was a pretty remarkable individual, and it wasn't until most recently that people even knew who he was, uh, what his involvement in this grand escape in World War One was. By the way, a way that I know I'm really into the book and into the author is when I find myself nodding, and then I remind myself it's radio and nobody can see that, but I'm <laughs> in such it's such agreement with this and, and just in such awe of the men and their stories. And even as my eye wanders over to the cover of The Escape Artists, there's an art to making a book. I don't know why they ever said don't judge a book by its cover because this book has a fantastic cover and there's barbed wire, the sky, you can't quite tell if the... If there's going to be a break in the clouds, it's a hopeful scene in that way, a hopeful weather pattern, a hopeful cloud cover. There's a couple of planes that are out, and then there's one that's caught like a bird, it almost looks like, because it's in the background and the barbed wire is in the foreground. And you find yourself, when you read the book, gazing at that cover and feel like you, too, are trapped inside that barbed wire behind that guard tower that's in the lower right and the and the wall there. And you say, would I be able to get out of there? Would I be able to motivate myself enough to to join one of these things, be brave enough to know you could lose everything and be sent to be worked to death? Not, not as if you even get the mercy of a quick bullet, which would be bad enough. You're going to be actually worked to death. It, it's a terrible story. And yet not only did these men endure it, but they were willing to share it, which was something very valuable for you as an author, because as you write, firsthand accounts were obviously out of the question. The World War I generation has passed on. So you had to, quote, depend on a rich and diverse range of primary documents. And you also talked to some people who were second and third generation who, fortunately, these men hadn't kept those stories bottled up. They had shared them. This task could overwhelm even a seasoned researcher like yourself. So how did you go about taking out your entrenching tool and digging into the work? And is there a trick to knowing when there's a dead end and some information is just lost to the ages, so it's time to just move on and realize you'll never answer some questions about the escape artists? Well, to the latter question, there's always, of course, parts of the story that you would want richer detail on that for whatever reason you can't discover it or, or it no longer exists. And, that, and that's particularly the case with these stories that, you know, happened a hundred years ago. But what I loved about writing Escape Artist was, as you talked about at the beginning of the interview, this is really kind of an untold story. And these men were so heroic and they deserve so much attention for what they did and the impact of it ultimately in creating MI9 that I wanted to know who they were. I wanted to sort of raise their actions and their stories to the foreground. And that was hard. I have to admit, when I initially started, you know, you run up against the fact that you can't interview anybody. So you have to find documents. And these officers who participated in the escape, and there were scores of them, had disseminated across the world after World War One. Many of them participated in World War Two and did not survive. And so it was kind of very much detective work to track down the families. But ultimately, when I did, I was so rewarded by the fact that these families had carried these stories of their grandfathers or their great uncles or, or whatever, kind of treasured them. In many cases, they kept photos. They kept the letters that these prisoners wrote in the camps. And in, in some circumstances, to my great benefit, these individuals uh, who participated in the escape wrote memoirs, pretty much all of which were not ever published. There was really no interest in this story <laughs> post, huh. you know, post about 1920. And so there was no outlet for them. But these families kept it for 100 years. Wow. And there I come knocking on their door. And I remember one prisoner in particular, James Bennett, who was a Royal Navy Air Service 
observer and his daughter is still alive and she, she lives in, in England. Her name's Lori Dunn. And, and you know, I, I met with her and we started talking and I wasn't quite even sure I was going to write the book until she's like, well, come, you know, see what I have here. And, she, you know, she had these three volumes of letters very meticulously put into these albums covered in plastic, really just sort of perfectly done. And that was the family memory. That was the family lore and they had harbored it. And that was just such a treasure to be able to find. So the families were instrumental. And also, you know, the British archives, fortunately, when you were a prisoner and you came back, usually at the end of the war, but even many of the escape prisoners, they were required to write reports on their experiences. And sometimes, you know, they were five or six pages, but there were hundreds of these. And so I was able to sort of collect all these small details from each of these reports. And those sort of paired with these memoirs, I was able to sort of put this whole story together. One of the more emotional and moving stories that I found was was Cecil Blaine. He was a Royal Flying Corps pilot. He was 19 years old when he was shot down. And he was one of the leaders of this great escape at Holtzmenden. And when he came back to England, he started to write his memoirs, handwritten, not very careful script, but you could see he needed, felt like he needed to tell his story. And there was probably about 22 pages of that. And then mid-page, it stopped. And I didn't quite understand, you know, I was at, you know, in an archive reading it and didn't know what had happened. But I, I learned that actually Cecil and right after the war was a test pilot and he was killed while trying out a new plane and he was never able to finish his memoir. But I had that core 22 pages of his story. And it was, again, just one of those things I kind of felt like a duty to write about. When the people are brought to life by their words and then to get swept up in it, you want there to be another story. You want to be able to go and, and ask them questions. Absolutely. So this is the closest we can get to going back to them and, and interviewing them or speaking to them. Still to this day, soldiers are able to learn from their example. Major Norman Crockett is the Royal Scots veteran who launches MI9 to give POWs in the next war, which they can't know is going to be much bigger and is going to be much sooner than they would expect in the Second World War. They want to train them so that they can learn from the experiences of the men at Holzminden. Take us inside one of those classes. What did soldiers learn that they applied to World War II situations such as the Great Escape? And are any of those techniques still in use a century later? I love that you asked that question because, again, it was one of the primary motivators of writing this book is, is how much of an impact these Holtzman and World War prisoners had on the creation of MI9 and the saving of so many lives in World War II. You know, harking back to what I was talking about with James Bennett, the Royal Naval Air Service Observer, he was recruited in World War II to be a lecturer for MI9. So his family had no idea what he was doing. They thought that he was still participating in his import-export business in, in World War II. But, you know, every day he would leave with his briefcase. Inside of it was a slide projector. He would have his notes. And then he would travel to air stations across the United Kingdom and give lectures to these pilots who would soon find themselves shot down in many circumstances. And he would tell them all that he had learned in his time as a prisoner and in his successful escape uh, from Holtzman. And probably the first thing that he would tell them uh, was get out as soon as possible. Your best chance of escape was in those first moments. So in his circumstance, he was shot down over the North Sea, was captured by a submarine of all things, was brought back to the coast and, and housed temporarily in a prison. And that was his great moment to get out. He just didn't take it because he didn't understand that what would happen was he would be put on a train. The further he got away from the border, the deeper he got into Germany, the chances of him ever getting out were impossible. And so, or seemingly impossible. So it was just those lessons providing supplies. James created, invented himself a button compass hmm. that could be hidden on the body. Again, in World War One, none of these pilots were provided any of these supplies. They weren't even provided parachutes because senior officers thought that that would make them less aggressive in the air. Oh, so they didn't really care about <laughs> Great them. plan. I forgot about that detail. <laughs> the, I, yeah. 
I think the, the what you what readers should understand is they were doing their duty, these pilots, but they were given very little training or supplies or anything in case things went wrong. And that's what's so great that came out of World War One for these prisoners, these escape artists, was this creation of, of MNI. If you look at the number, by just sheer statistical numbers, there were only several hundred successful escapes in World War One with those vast seas of populations. Because of MI9, because of the escape evasion service, not only done by the British, but the Americans had their own counterpart. There was over 30,000 pilots and, and others who managed to escape in World War Two. That's the number of lives that were saved, just that we know of, of course. And even today, you know, they're given seer lessons here by the military on the art of escape. And many of the lessons that were learned hark back again to this World War One story. It's quite a legacy that these men have, the way that they were willing to share. And I was thinking, as you mentioned, that pilot, he was quite a young man, the observer. I think he said he was 17 at the time. So by the time World War II comes around, he's still a relatively young man. So when you say his family still thinks he's running his business and yet he's going to serve, that's something that having been to Bletchley Park and knowing many of those heartbreaking stories that they record there and getting these veterans, getting their words down as oral history, that was tough because if you were a young man and they wanted you there breaking Hitler's Enigma Code or the war was going on, why aren't you fighting? If you were a young man... They wanted to know what you were doing in the war effort. There was a lot of pressure. There's stories of fathers on their deathbed, one in particular that was he refused to still speak to his son because he thought he had been a coward during the war, whereas wow. he was performing this essential service. He was working to try to break these codes, and that's what they wanted you to do, and that's what you would be doing. You know, you weren't able to just say, well, no, forget it. Leave me alone. They were performing a service, but they all signed the Official Secrets Act, so they were never able to tell anybody until somebody finally blabs in the early 70s, which many of these elderly veterans, now elderly, are not too happy about. They thought he should have been punished. But so even something small and casual like that, when you read The Escape Artist, you get your head into this history, you realize the real service that they gave just by being willing to share what they had learned. There are a bunch of illustrations and pictures in the escape artists about some of those things. For instance, the maps you draw, you were describing the prison within a prison within a prison. That's in there. One that struck me, though, is a flyer about a reunion of the men who defeated Holzminden's walls and Carl Niemeyer. You mentioned that the men spread out after the war far and wide. And so it may seem strange that they would want to keep in touch like college classmates, that they would have reunions, that they wouldn't just bury the memories, especially the ones that had the shame of being captured. What was the nature of those get-togethers, and how many of them were there, roughly? Well, there was a sense among these prisoners, particularly the ones who escaped from Holtzman, and they lived in this camp together for almost a year. Many of them had been in other camps together. So they had formed the sort of fraternity that had, was deeply enmeshed in the dangers that they shared, the risks that they took, and ultimately the success that they had. And I think that will always engender these very tight-knit bonds between individuals. So after the war, Bennett and some of the other Holtzman escapees decided that they wanted to get together with their friends. And so they had a sort of impromptu gathering. I believe the first one was, was five years after the war. And but then they found, you know, and then they swapped stories just like you do at any reunion. They brought out the old maps. They brought out the gear that they had used to escape, whether it was false documents or the maps that they created uh, or the compasses that they hid in shaving brushes. And they just talked of times that had gone past. And I think that that was just something that on a yearly basis or every five years that they continue to find that fraternity. And I see that with other war stories, uh, whether it's spies or people who participated in the operations in Norway to stop Hitler's bomb, that, that these individuals who sort of getting together is a kind of way of dealing with the past. So I think it was fun for them, but I also think it was an emotional solve in some way. And as you're speaking about it, I'm thinking of the late Senator John McCain and his POW experience and being able to go back and meet the jailer, one of the men who held him prisoner. And you know, there are some very sadistic things that he's suffered as well. 
if you are going to come out the other side, steel bars aren't the only part of the cage. You have to be able to find a way through what comes after, the pain after, the scars. And so maybe that's that's one way these guys were able to get together and do what they did when they were in there. That illustration has a little cartoon there of the commandant coming up out of the ground and they're teasing and making fun of him still to that day for what was going on under his nose. And so maybe that helped them to be able to deal with what they had gone through. Absolutely. I think the mocking and the buffoonery that they sort of put on Nehemiah, you do get the sense that that was a way for them to deal with their lack of power in some ways, to make a mockery of, of the figure that was sort of ruling their lives. And that was, again, just a way to handle these things. Speaking of going back, I wanted to ask you what remains of the land that Hells Minden was on, where these pilots were held captive. And as a practical matter, when you're writing the escape artists, were you able to go back and walk some of that land, see any parts of where they had been kept, as you did in the snowy wilds of Norway for the Winter Fortress, which was one of my favorite parts of that conversation. You get to wear one of those men, one of their... Long underwear, right? When you're going out there skiing <laughs> yeah. in Norway. And having been to Norway myself, I love that sort of detail. And having actually been to Telemark where they did all of this. But anyway, for this book, for the escape artists, were you able to do any of those sorts of things? Yes. I mean, I, I definitely walked the grounds and actually still a, a military barracks huh. in Germany. Uh, it was originally, Holtzmann was originally a cavalry barracks for German troops. When they needed a new prison camp, they renovated it and turned it into a prison. So it was still in use in that respect. And you can actually go, ultimately, these prisoners, the way that they they got out was they created a, a tunnel over many months. It was very hard, dangerous, claustrophobic, terrible work. But you can still go to under the stairwell where they began their actual tunnel. Wow. And so it's it's kind of a moving thing to see as well as to sort of traverse some of the ground that they had to go on, you know, in the 15 days that it took them to reach freedom in, in Holland. Is that a German base or a NATO base, a U.S. base? German base. Okay. We have time for one final question before lights out. Several times in the escape artists, prisoners are recaptured literally yards from freedom. In one case, a POW mistakes a town in Germany for one with the same name across the border in neutral territory. He's just so close. Tunnels are exposed by the rain. Tools are discovered during random searches. What can readers learn from the way these men overcame crushing defeats, disappointments, and dehumanization, even if we're hopefully never held against our will? Well, the value of persistence, I think, is probably what the sort of lead takeaway from from the probably the most successful escape artists, they were ones that had tried 10 times, were ultimately put into Holtzman, and they learned from each other, and then they executed the biggest escape of, of World War One. And that persistence, the sort of source of that, was this fraternity that we just spoke about, you know, this sense of teamwork, this sense of relying on each other, not only on digging their way out of the camp, but the pairs or the three men together that would travel all the way to Holland, depending on each other, leaning on each other, teamwork, that was the source of the persistence that made this such a great story. Well, Neil Bascom, I'm disappointed that our time together, which has been so enjoyable compared to the escape artists and the trials that they went through, <laughs> has come to an end. I really appreciate you taking the time to bring this inspiring story of defiance in the face of capture during the Great War to us today. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I really look forward to your next trip to the bookstore where you'll look for a space where there's an untold story and you'll fill it for us. That's a real talent you have, and it's something I really appreciate, so thank you. Uh, you're, you're very kind. Thank you. Again, the book that I enjoyed so much is The Escape Artists, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison break of the Great War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate via the Amazon banner at the top of our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, 
That banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help fund more adventures for our time machine as we tunnel into lost stories like the escape artists. Once again, thanks to talented, prolific, and all-around good guy, Neil Bascom, for catching up with us and sharing these stirring tales of heroism during the war against the Central Powers. It wasn't the war to end all wars as was promised, but it was a war that made the experience of POWs who came later a little bit easier, with a little bit more hope. Check out our conversation about Neil's previous book, The Winter Fortress. You can also visit him at neilbascom.com, follow at neilbascom on Twitter, or toss him a like at facebook.com slash neilrbascom. That last name is spelled B-A-S-C-O-M-B. If you enjoyed this tale of Great War heroism, we have a lot more of them in the World War I section at historyauthor.com. Those include the book An American on the Western Front that I mentioned earlier. And while the book As I Knew Him, My Father Rod Serling by Ann Serling isn't a World War I book, you can enjoy learning about Rod Serling and his experiences in World War II and how that influenced his writing. Remember to let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, on Instagram at the History Author Show, where we have a great shot of the Escape Artist cover that I was praising during our interview. Or you can like us at Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra Boys declared, but the hand that held glasses of wine in the air were the first to hold guns when I rode over there. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.